0: Hello, I'm Jonathan Mast and welcome to this edition of the Sedgwick Podcast. I am uh, very pleased to have my guest today is Ian Gibbs, National Technical Manager, Repair Solutions. And we're talking about a, a very important and prevalent topic right now. Uh, we're talking about flood resilience and sustainable claim solutions. And Ian is uh, one of our leading experts there. and Ian, it's great to have you with us today.
1: Yeah, nice to be here, Thompson.
0: Well, let's let's jump into the topic and and look at our first uh, first segment. First question is: What have housing associations and local authorities to gain from flood resilience? Define that for our listeners.
1: Um, yes, the answer really is a great deal, as long as it's part of a really well thought
0: through strategy.
1: There's a growing acceptance that flood risk is increasing just to give some stats in the uk there's 5.2 million homes and businesses at risk of flooding now the environment agency does research on future risk and there's a 35 percent increase in predicted in winter rainfall by 2070 and it's also predicted that there'll be a doubling of the building on floodplains by 2065 so you can see the problem is set to get worse unfortunately but as owners of large housing stock, which you'll keep for many years, then the value of investing for the long term, protecting these assets, is much easier to establish whenever a cost-benefit analysis. But it's worth explaining more of what flood resilience really entails, to, to put some context. So flood resilience is made up of three things. There's resistance, there's recoverability, and then there's a flood planning aspect. So resistance, what is it? It's the use of material and approaches to manage the water entry into a building. So it really means trying to keep the water out, not completely, but as much as you can. And typical measures would be flood doors or flood barriers, which I expect most people will be familiar with. Secondly is recoverability. This is the use of materials, products, and approaches that prevent the building and the business or the business from being unduly damaged by the flood and be able to recover more quickly. So typically, this is surface finishes that wouldn't absorb water, like a tiled floor or services that are raised, plug sockets for example, or IT equipment raised above the flood level. And finally is flood planning. This is about how you prepare your home or your business for the, um, to minimize really the impact of a flood. So typically, this is setting up a plan to respond. So having the flood warnings, be ready with your team to respond, but also things like implementing a storage strategy so that items are above that level. So you may store raw materials or finished product above any flood line. So I guess that's really the key things that um,
0: can be gained for a well-thought-through strategy. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but probably now what people are thinking when we – When we hear about this type of preparation are flood resilience efforts expensive? i think that's what our listeners would like to know next
1: yeah absolutely the obvious question when trying something new is is the cost going to be too high or is, is the value going to be there in doing it so flood resilience doesn't have to be expensive but really it's about when you do the work and thinking longer term about when you could upgrade a property to be more flood resilient. So the obvious opportunity is after a flood. So you would be repairing the building anyway, and you put in those flood resilient yeah. measures. But if you think more laterally, why not plan to do the work during your other repair works or maintenance works? So you might have door replacements or window replacements, so doing cyclically, longer-term capital programs to refurbish the property, or another uh, incident like a fire or an impact. So there are already times when you're working in the property that significantly reduces the cost. And we find typically in a, a typical flood example, for five to £10,000 investment, um, there there's significant amounts of flood resilience impact that, that can be achieved, either eliminating a claim entirely or reducing it to a significant degree. So the way to think about it is how to reduce the cost, not just... Eliminating the water and having no claim, it maybe if you took a claim from uh, forty thousand to five thousand, you wouldn't have eliminated the flood entirely, but it would be a huge impact for your investment of five or ten thousand pounds. So, thinking of it as uh, an investment across a portfolio of properties, looking at the opportunities to install at low cost means you can, you know, make it a cost-effective solution. That's what the, that's what the stats tell us
0: anyway. No, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Planning always always helps and, and that leads to the next the next thought, which is what does this uh what does this mean in terms of benefits for for you once you start making those efforts? Yeah, good question.
1: Well, the challenge that you face um with in high flood risk areas in the commercial arena is finding um adequate cover for flooding once you've been flooded. So if you um, put a really effective flood resilience strategy in place, then you have the opportunity to reduce your risk. Now, you may be self-insuring or it may be an insurer or broker that you're working with to get the most affordable terms. So it, it really is effective if you, if you explain that you have a really effective resilient strategy at reducing that risk. And that can affect the, uh, the excess that you'll pay on the policy, um, and it can affect you at the other terms. So it also does some positive things of demonstrating in your community, if you're a social housing um, provider, that you are investing in protecting your community. And this can mean that residents will often um, have a higher levels of, um, of, of, of not having cover for contents than, than the average in the, in the economy will mean you're protecting your residents' contents which is a problem we find in these flood, uh, large flood events. And finally, uh, corporate social responsibility is really a key and this, this approach can reduce your carbon footprint, which we're, um, going to talk a little bit more about, um, in a bit.
0: Well, when we think about a wider, uh, view than just flood resilience, Ian, how can housing associations and local authorities deliver a low carbon feature for their portfolio.
1: Yeah, thanks, Anton. I think I'll talk now a little bit wider about how you can be uh, more sustainable in your approach, not just in flooding, but across the, you know, the impact um, of, of building buildings, repairing buildings, and let's see where we go with that. So the obvious opportunity, if you're gonna build a new property, either from um, a, a clay or actually just new housing stock, would be to look at innovative technologies to reduce the carbon footprint of that property. And that is an evolving area of development in the construction industry and, and you would be able to find um, lower carbon solutions. But in practice, new build represents such a small percentage of the total um, portfolio of properties that you'll be uh, owning that it's not the real issue to make a big impact. You're going to have to look at your existing housing stock to try and remove, reduce the uh, environmental impact so I would say the best way to explain it is to think about where this carbon footprint as, as is commonly described comes from. If you own this large housing stock, you're going to have two, uh, two sectors of carbon that you'll need to think about. One is embodied carbon and the other one is operational carbon. So I'll just start explaining embodied carbon first and we'll talk about that. So embodied carbon is the carbon that's emitted during the making disposal of a building, really. So it's making the building materials, extraction of the raw material, making it into bricks or windows, uh, transporting it to site, the construction process, the demolition and, and reuse, if we can, of that material. But it also includes the repair and refurbishment of buildings. So if you are building a new building, clearly you will make it as low carbon as possible. But if you're repairing and refurbishing buildings, that is increasing the embodied carbon of that building and therefore something that you need to be concerned about in the repair in the repair phase of any works. So think of embodied carbon as a sort of one-time emission uh, that's then calculated. So how do you make an impact on that? Well, clearly, if you're going to have an insurance claim, if you can really understand the resilience of those building materials to fire, flood, or, or, or whatever, then you can minimize the strip-out and maximize what you're saving in that, in that building, basically. Maximize the restoration. And um, we've got good evidence that that can significantly reduce the carbon footprint by some 30% um, uh, on the repair stage. Also, you can, I mentioned, protect the buildings for future claims, against future claims, by making them more flood resilient. So, obviously, that will significantly reduce um, the flood resilience sorry, the, uh, the, the impact rather of future claims by installing flood resilience. And some, some research done by major insurer looking at the positive impacts of that. Um, the low carbon alternatives when you're repairing the building is also important. There's low carbon materials that can be used, something as simple as paint is highly carbon intensive. And by using different um, types of paint, you can reduce that carbon footprint. So it's not all complicated stuff, can be done simply. And finally, you mentioned capital works programmes, refurbishment. Well, it's possible to lower the carbon footprint there again by looking at what materials you use and how you do things. So that's the embodied carbon. But I'm also going to talk about the operational carbon. Just just to help separate and make you um, clear what I mean by that. So operational carbon is the carbon emitted during the use and maintenance of the building. This is the energy. When the building is being used, the heat, the light, etc. So think of operational carbon as the ongoing emissions whilst using the building. So typically, these would be low energy lighting, putting in um, ground air source heat pumps, maybe using solar panels, uh, increasing the insulation, all those things that mean that the energy used in the day to day maintenance and use of the building um, are lower. So two areas to think about then in trying to reduce your overall carbon footprint.
0: Well, and then that, that obviously opens up as as we wrap this up. You've you talked about all the operations, all these things that we can do, and it all sounds like it's going to lead us to a lot of benefits. So what are there other things you haven't touched on as people are listening what are we getting out of this? How the the lower carbon approach uh, help in the big picture?
1: Yeah, great. Thanks, Jonathan. The thing I would focus on here really is the overall challenge an organization will face in, uh, in the future as we look at overall benefits of a lower carbon approach. So as large organizations, more and more they're being driven to report their carbon emissions, depending on the size. Um, It depends on the extent of reporting at the moment, but reducing this organizational carbon footprint of the the, organization will be a key thing for the future. So by repairing, by making yourselves more flood resilient, by building in lower carbon products, you'll reduce the organizational carbon. Now, what this means is that as you go towards a net zero, um, it will reduce the carbon offsetting that needs to be done. In order to sort of offset the carbon footprint that is you know, created by the organisation, now what it also does it shows you're supporting the development of the green economy. I think it's a growing area where locally, where companies are are trying to um, provide products that can support a local economy that are green solutions. Then um, that is what you know. As social housing, that's a great thing to be doing. Um, it also really drives the change in communities because this is a mindset thing it's really important that everyone understands and try and reduce the, the the impact of carbon everybody has a, a part to play and large organizations can drive that change by their behavior and on a, a smaller level in it really helping your tenants uh, living in a property then energy costs currently in the UK are such a massive issue so by and um, working with uh, Your tenants, you can reduce their overall um, costs. So, at a macro level and really at a micro level, of individuals taking a lower carbon approach can have real benefits for you as an organisation, but also for the people that work in your organisation and
0: the people you support. Well, Ian, this has all been really interesting, and I think, as as you mentioned at the top, something that's top of mind to a lot of people right now, and. So if people want to find out more information, how how would they best uh, contact you?
1: Yeah, so the best thing to do, probably, would just contact me by email. although I'm happy to share um, my, obviously, telephone details as well. Um, And, you know, I find it a really interesting area that's developing an insurance sector uh, where we're supporting our clients. So, yeah, please get in touch um, just for a conversation, if that's all. Um, I think it's a really interesting area. Well,
0: once again – Thanks to our guest, uh, Ian Gibbs, and uh, we appreciate everyone listening, and until next time.